Let's pray and seek the face of our Lord together. Jesus, we come to you this morning first with praise because of your goodness. You are the one that is sovereign over all, the first and the last. Nothing escapes your gracious gaze. You are the one that dwells amongst your people, the priest who tends to the light of your people. And so you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. We confess to you this morning that the cares of this world have begun to crush our spirit. Lord, we are not as strong as you. As we look at the world around us and as many in this congregation are coming up against suffering and sickness and trials, we admit that it has taken a toll on us. Forgive us for our unbelief this morning and infuse into us your faithfulness and your endurance. Thank you for the fact that you have joined us together by your one spirit in unity so that we might love and care for one another in the midst of these trials. And so we intercede this morning on behalf of our brothers and sisters in this church that are sick. We particularly intercede for our brother Jordan Schrock and ask you to give him strength and endurance. We call upon your mercy and compassion and power to heal his lungs and help him to breathe the breath of life that you have given him. Please be with his doctors and nurses and give them wisdom in his care. We also pray for his wife Spencer and their children that you would give them your peace that surpasses earthly understanding. We also intercede on behalf of Bud and Pam Griffith and ask for your strength to encourage them as they so often encourage each of us. Please heal their bodies of any remaining sickness and please heal the bodies of all in this congregation that are fighting in the midst of this season of illness. Thank you for the many that have already recovered or are recovering, some that are even here this morning. Thank you for your miraculous immune system that you placed within us as your creation. It is your mercy and grace that sustains us. We give you thanks as well for our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso this morning, and we pray that you would encourage and build up the pastors meeting these last few weeks for a pastor's conference and seminary education. Please use it to further your gospel in a persecuted land. We pray especially for the pastor's wives this morning as they bear such a great burden in caring for their families and churches as they co-labor with their husbands. <clears throat> We pray for all brothers and sisters across the world this morning who are suffering for the sake of your name. Help us to have the appropriate perspective so that we might remember them in their trials and recognize the great blessings and freedoms you have given us and not take them for granted. We also pray for our brothers and sisters at the Branch Church in Corvallis and Pastor Doug Payne and the elders and leadership team that co-labor with him. We pray that they would be built up by the faithful preaching of your word. <clears throat> and Jesus, we pray the same thing for ourselves this morning. You are the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, a symbol of your word that cuts between flesh and spirit. We pray that you would use it this morning to purify your people here at Mission Fellowship, that our fidelity and allegiance would be to you alone. Please do your surgical work this morning to convict us of any flesh that may reign in our lives. We pray that your word would strengthen us and make us a peculiar people that can shine as bright lights in a world looking for answers and looking for truth. Jesus, we know that you alone are the truth. So please impart that truth to us this morning, for we are made perfect, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit in our midst. Please speak through Nick as he teaches us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As I pondered the text this week and it became the days grew closer to Sunday on Friday and Saturday, I was like, Lord, with all this going on in this church, 
why do we have Revelation 2 today? Is there not a, a better text that you would have maybe for us this week with all of the hardship and the sickness? Uh, but I trust that God in his sovereignty knows exactly what we need to hear today. And so it is to Revelation 2 that I would encourage you to turn. When a couple is married, they stand in front of their family and friends and they profess their undying love for each other. Till death do us part, right? That's kind of that's what is said at a wedding. Forever and always. For me, it was a east, sunny eastern Washington day at the beginning of June. It was over 100 degrees. I was sweaty in a tux and because I was nervous, right? I was about, to ready, uh, about ready to marry uh, the love of my, wife, my life, Janelle. We were set to stand in front of our friends and family where we would profess our undying love for each other. Our wedding wasn't anything out of the ordinary. We stood there in front of all of the guests and professed and stated our vows and our I do's, and we were pronounced man and wife. This is really what takes place at any wedding, a stating of the vows that, that I am yours and you are mine, that exclusive rights are then given to the spouse. Unfaithfulness, we won't tolerate it. It will not be tolerated in our marriage. That's, that's what's taking place at a wedding. And yet, it's an unfortunate reality that life doesn't always go like we planned it to. In many marriages, that exclusive fidelity, it doesn't last. Little issues begin to creep in, whether it's images on a phone, flirting with a coworker, that results in maybe just an emotional divulgence of, of information and, be, and, and just like flirting with your coworker. Or maybe it's just fantasizing about being married to another person. Or even just not being married at all. This is just so hard, I want out. We easily fall into discontentment. When the waters of life get rough, the grass becomes greener on the other side of the fence. Infidelity is an issue of the heart, not just the body. Fidelity to one spouse can come under attack, and it isn't long before we find ourselves walking with one foot in our marriage and one foot on the way out. Now, some marriages can go on for years like this, and yet others, they just end up dissolving. And in doing so, they demonstrate that the oath that they committed to, the covenant they entered into, was never really truly present, not at least on the heart level. Now, while many marriages are ruined from infidelity, Jesus is not like that. He will not, his church, be unfaithful to him. And so this morning, we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves looking at the micro letter uh, to the church in Pergamum, verses 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2. So if you have not turned there already, I would invite you to do so. John has received this vision from Jesus Christ. The letter to the seven churches are then a key, this is the key to understanding the entire book as the imagery that we see played out in these micro letters are a part and will be played out later in the book, right? And we've been looking at and seeing this slide. So these 
these uh, letters in chapter 1 will play out in chapters 4 through 20 of the rest of the book. So let's read now Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the church in Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have this, a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is a heavy text, and yet a heavy text with a bright ending. The church of Jesus Christ is imaged throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, as his bride, as the bride of Jesus. And as his bride, the church in Pergamum was willing to tolerate sin. They were willing to tolerate sin for the the purpose of self-preservation. If we do this, we can exist longer and safer and be happier. They weren't willing to do what it takes to live in the world, but not be of the world. Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum praises some of their members for their faithfulness, but it holds the entire church accountable for tolerating false teachers and for tolerating sin. So here's the big idea. This is the, uh, the big idea of the, the, the title of the sermon. Pergamum, calling the church to exclusive fidelity with Jesus. Write that down. Calling the church to exclusive fidelity with Jesus. This is key to understanding uh, the whole, the the five verses that we're covering. Uh, We've broken it out like this, and and this is very similar to the rest of the letters that we've been going through in Revelation chapter 2. We see a salutation. We see a commendation. And then in this, in this letter, we see an exhortation and a warning that are really kind of put together, and they fit very nicely together. And then finally, we see a reward, and this follows the outline, the very, uh, very similar outline to what we have seen in the rest of the letters in the book of Revelation that we've been looking at so far. So let's right away look at a salutation from the one who carries the sword of judgment. Verse 12 And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Right here, we have met the description of the author of this letter. This letter to Pergamum is dictated by the one who carries the sharp, two-edged sword. And just so we're clear, that image that we see used here, we saw in the previous chapter. In chapter 
1, verse 16. The sword was pictured there as coming out of the mouth of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the imagery of a sword was one that brings judgment and war, right? A sword brought with it violence and judgment. In the New Testament, we have a different image of what a sword is. Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12, and you can see this on the screen. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here in the New Testament, we see that a sword, the sword is the word of God. In Revelation, Jesus stands ready to jump into action with the sword of his word. This this image is threatening yet comforting. The church is called to be guided by God's word, and it is then in God's word that we find Jesus' expectations for his people. We find how it is that our lives ought to reflect that of our Savior's. So when we submit to God's word, to uh, the rule of his word, it is instructive and corrective. It tells us that we are not to be that we are to be shaped into God's image, not into our own image. We are called to look like our savior. And as it does that, it teaches that it us it, it instructs us, it also corrects us. Hey, Stop walking over here. Stop looking like the world and and, and look like your Savior. It brings us back onto the path that God has for us. It points out our sin, maybe sin that we didn't even know that we had. And as it does, our hearts begin to reflect that of the heart of God. What is clear here in Revelation is that God's word isn't just instructive for individuals, It isn't just corrective for us on an individual level. It's instructive and corrective for the church as a whole. Through God's word, we can know how we ought to behave in the household of God. Does that sound familiar? Recently, we just finished a series in Timothy where that was one of the big ideas of the whole book. And in that book, we received instruction and we've received correction It is the word of God that keeps his church holy. Now, God's word is often characterized by as a source of comfort, right? Or uh, the writing on a serene picture that we hang in our house, a place that we can go in hard times. And I don't want to downplay that or minimize it. It is. That's very true. But it's not just that. So what we see here is that the word of God is a sword. It is ready and, and able to wage war in our life and in the church. And in this letter to Pergamum, it is God's word that is held by Jesus, the Lord of the church, that stands at the ready. And it is then in in God's word in verse 13 that we see the commendation. A commendation, the church's faithfulness. Let's look at verse 13 again. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus calls his church to 
to be faithful to him and to him alone. What we see here in verse 13 is that faithfulness to Jesus is costly. Faithfulness to Christ is costly. He is fully aware of the, that some of the members and, and where this church lives and where some of the members dwell, they live where Satan's throne is. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, okay, I really want to know where that is so I don't go there, right? Or that I'm, so that I'm not living there. Uh, and, and as a reader, that's the question I'm asking. Where is Satan's throne? Well, there isn't a general consensus as to where this is and what is truly meant by John. Pergamum was the center of worship to foreign gods. It included the temple of Zeus and a whole bunch of other Greek and Roman gods. And so to exist, to live in that city, meant to be surrounded by idolatry. Now, as Hans pointed out last week, in the business world of that day, it also meant, and to be successful, meant that you were involved in trade guilds. Trade guilds uh, would call you as a member and require you as a member to participate in pagan worship, which would include temple prostitution, offering sacrifices to these gods, and, and if you did not participate, you would be shunned by the community and unable to provide for your family. So the description of Satan's throne leaves us with a picture of, man, that's the life that, these, that this church was living. They lived in the center of worship to foreign and other gods. Now, the, the description of Satan's throne could also mean that Satan is the prince of this world, that he is the ruler, that he has power that God has allowed him to have to rule in this world. And so, and so I think that there's also a picture and imagery of that as well that we see here in Revelation chapter 2. And friends, our world today is not much different than that world then. A world that is more and more demanding that we, in the 21st century, participate if we want to play. That, that we play by their rules, that we act how they want us to act, or we really have no space with them. Jesus commends the church in Revelation that though they live where Satan dwells, right at the very heart of his throne, where he rules, that they, as a church, have held fast to the name of Jesus. In fact, we see that this church has not just been faithful in hard times, but in really, really hard times. They have suffered persecution to the point of death. One of their members named Antipas had died from the persecution that he had faced there in Pergamum. Now, we don't really know much about Antipas. We don't know much about who he was. Now, some early traditions have him uh, dying by the hands of Nero by being burned on an altar. Uh, but once again, this is just tradition and not necessarily fact. So we don't really know much about who he is other than that he was faithful. His death, the death that he died, was a demonstration, was held up by the author of Revelation, by Jesus, as a, as a commendation of the church's faithfulness. 
that in spite of this persecution that they were facing, in spite of the persecution that they were encountering, they were holding fast to Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear. The persecution that Christians suffer is for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what persecution is in the New Testament. That's, what perse- that's what, how God defines persecution. Now, we are quick, I, I feel, to label all sorts of actions by others as persecution. We are quick to look for persecution, for, for hatred from the world. But persecution that is, in, that is de- defined in Scripture, is, and even that throughout church history, is a persecution for preaching the gospel, for preaching the good news. Fidelity to Jesus Christ is demonstrated through the fruit of faithfulness. Not, just, not to just be refused to be silenced, but refused to participate with the world in its idolatry. You can't just stop me from preaching the gospel, but I won't act like you act either. I won't try to blend in. That is fidelity as Jesus defines it. It is in the face of persecution then that the metal of faithfulness is tested. Persecution tests the resolve of what we believe. Do we actually believe what we say we believe or are we just giving lip service? Persecution refines that. Persecution lets us know where our hearts truly lie. Look how 1 Peter in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, talks about persecution and suffering. They they kind of go hand in hand. Follow along with me as I read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Persecution, suffering are to be expected, not because we're blockheads and we're stubborn and mean and ornery, but because we are talking and acting and living like and about Jesus. When persecution is faced, faithfulness to Christ demonstrates that we truly identify with his suffering and that his suffering is the basis of our suffering. He is our faithful Savior, and our life is entrusted to a God who is in control of everything, including the persecution that we are enduring. It is in the face of suffering persecution, then, that the gem of faithfulness shines. Persecution should be expected in this life. It shouldn't come as a surprise. We ought not hide it, hide from it, but rather embrace it. In fact, if, if you aren't experiencing suffering, if that's not something that, that persecution isn't really something you've endured in life, ostracization from friends or family, it may be 
that your life does not reflect the life of Christ. It might be that reason. The church in Pergamum faced persecution with a severity that we do not understand. We are not familiar with the, the, the depth of and the awfulness of this persecution. You and I do not face the threat of death or flogging or being beat. But I think that if we, we stop and we ponder our life, there are little ways in which we do encounter persecution. For me, a few years back, we had a family member suffer a traumatic death. Janelle and I then attended this funeral that was held at a mosque. Uh, there was a Christian, a Protestant, performing half of the service, and there was a Muslim performing the other half of the service. And it was during the last half of the funeral, as the officiant had everybody stand and then bow back towards Mecca to pray, that I had a tough choice to make. I could face rejection, embarrassment, questions, and walk out, or I could stay. Now, for me, I chose to get up and walk out in front of everybody. It was not an easy choice, but it was a very clear one that I needed to make. It was obvious to all, and I had even been quizzed by the people that were there, will you, will you stick around for ours if, you stick around, if we stick around for yours? Persecution in 21st century America isn't going to look like death by fire or being flogged, at least not yet. What we shouldn't overlook, though, are the little ways, the minute ways that we are tempted to sell out our faith and to conform to how the world calls us to conform. We are called to have a seat with, at the table of the world. Friend, member at mission, do not be conformed to the things of this world. It is in Scripture, then, that we are conformed to the heart of Christ. The sword of his word shapes us and corrects us into his image. It is then in his suffering that our identity as believers is clarified. In, this, in our suffering, as we identify with Christ's suffering, it is then that our identity with Christ is clarified. It, it is made new. It shines. And persecution takes place when we make stands for the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that he died on a cross and three days was raised to life, and it is his victory over sin and death that is worth standing up for. He is the one God worth worshiping and forsaking all other little gods for. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is what it takes, to, and that's, that's what we must profess and believe to be saved. So if you would like to know more about what it means to be saved or, or know more about the gospel, I am more than happy to talk with you, more than happy to discuss it with you uh, or any number of people here or find an elder, another one of the elders that will be happy to explain the good news of Jesus Christ. Persecution, then, was a distinct reality for most Christians in Pergamum. It was something that they had to deal with. And though they faced it, though they encountered it, they were faithful. 
And as we will see in the next few verses, though, it wasn't all praise from, to the church from Christ. There was a group of Christians there in Pergamum that was deterred by, from fidelity to Christ and were uh, interacting with the world. Point three, we have an exhortation and warning. Faithlessness brings judgment. Faithlessness brings judgment. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. Follow along with me again as I read. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In this one point, we see both an exhortation and a warning. For the faithlessness to those in the church, Jesus brings a charge against his bride. They have people among them. They are tolerating people in their midst who are unfaithful. They proclaim the faithfulness of Christ. They proclaim him as their savior, but they aren't really truly walking with him. These people were holding to were told were holding to the teachings of Balaam. Here we run into more of that imagery that is just all throughout the book of Revelation. So it demands us to look outside of this text to figure out okay, who is Balaam and what is uh, Jesus meaning here when he references him. Well, the story of Balaam Uh, is outlined, and you can read it on your own, in Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24. And so if you'd like to look at those on your own this week, I would invite you to do so. Numbers 22 through 24. For the sake of our time this morning, the narrative there is about a godless prophet named Balaam. He was tasked by the king of Midian, Balak, right? They have very similar names. I get them confused all the time. Balaam the prophet, Balak the king, to curse the people of God. So the people of God had been set free. Israel had been set free from their bondage in Israel, was wandering through the wilderness, and there were roughly six million people. So it wasn't a small group. It was a large group, and they were a threat to the surrounding nations. And Midian was no exception. So Balak summons Balaam and says, hey, Come and curse this people. Curse them. Well, Balaam received a warning from God in a dream. Don't do it. So he didn't. Balak was very persistent, the king, and sent another group of messengers. And Balaam said, all right, fine, I'll go. And that's where uh, the very famous portion of this story is. As he was on his way, we have a talking donkey. No Shrek, just a talking donkey. And... uh, and, and, and there, this angel is standing before this donkey and Balaam with a sword. And the donkey's like, hey, let's not do this. And the angel reveals itself. So the angel was holding a sword. So once again, we have some tight, uh, tight parallel with what we see in Revelation with the sword. But the angel commanded that Balaam not curse Israel. Instead, bless them. Do not curse these people, but bless them. 
And so, as Balaam arrived and standing on the hill overlooking the people of Israel, opened his mouth, cursing would not come out. He could not do it. And so three times he prophesied blessing against the people of God and on the people of God. The king wasn't happy. Here I am paying you for your unique set of skills to accomplish, accomplish a purpose and you're not doing it. In fact, you're doing the opposite of what I want. It was embarrassing, I'm sure, to the prophets, and uh, you know there was money involved, so I'm sure it wasn't a, a healthy situation. Israel was experiencing the blessing of God that not even the enemies of God could stop. So what was the solution? Well, instead of overtly standing up and cursing the people of Israel, the prophet Balaam, advised the king of Midian to how to take down and subvert the blessing of God. So in Numbers 25, verse 1, right away, we see that the people of Israel, as they were living in that valley, began to marry the daughters of Moab, and this was expressly against the commands of God. This breaking of the covenant with God would bring the judgment of God, not the blessing of God. Now that seems like, following the story of Balaam and Balak, 25 verse 1, the next verse talks about Israel marrying these, these women. It seems like inconsequential information. What's the, why, why is that included? Well, it's six chapters later, in Numbers chapter 31, that we see, you can see this on the screen, Behold these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. That's the valley. And so plague came among the congregation of the Lord. If Balaam couldn't profit off of cursing the people of Israel, he would contribute to their demise by causing them to disobey the commands of God. Subtly, Israel disobeyed God by marrying people outside of God's covenant people. And so Israel would not experience God's blessing, but would know God's judgment. And in fact, that judgment was often brought through war, through the sword. In Pergamum, back to Revelation, the church was acting like Israel in the book of Numbers. They were acting like Israel in the book of Numbers. There were people in that church walking with one foot in the world, and one foot in the church. They were attempting to marry themselves to the world as well as to Christ. And in doing so, they broke the covenant they had with Christ. And whether it was intentional or not, whether they knew it was taking place or not, the church was facing the judgment of God. Jesus is putting them on notice here. Stop it. The Nicolaitans that we see in verse 15 uh, were the ones that were advocating for this. Now, we don't know a ton about the teachings of the Nicolaitans, but we do know from history a little bit and that they, had, they taught some sort of antinomian, so no law, the law is gone, antinomian Gnosticism. Look, they would say, we are forgiven. We're Christians. Let's, let's survive happily in this world and live like the world 
offer sacrifices, sleep with temple prostitutes. I mean, our families will be taken care of. It will go better for us. Life will be easier. After all, we're under grace, not under law. Right? We can play the world's system and trust God's forgiveness. Maybe you've heard this from your own heart, right? If you look at yourself, maybe you've said this or heard others who have said something like this. Look, it, it doesn't matter what you do during the week. You can operate your business or, or at, at, with questionable ethics. You can cut corners. You can smoke this substance. You can get drunk if you want. You can have sex outside of marriage. It's not that big of a deal. God wants us to be happy, and I mean, I'm forgiven. God is merciful, and he will forgive. This isn't right. It's wrong. I'll be very clear with you. That is not the right way. That is not what Scripture says we ought to look to our salvation. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You're his enemy. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We can't walk with one foot in the world and one foot in a relationship with Jesus. It just doesn't work. You're either friend or foe. There is no middle of the road. There is no lukewarm Christianity. You are either part of the people of Christ or you are cheating on him as you one would their own spouse. If only it were that clear. Faithlessness, being unfaithful, is not easy to discern sometimes. It often presents itself as necessary for our survival. Think about the Christians in Pergamum. They didn't participate in the culture around them. They would be ostracized. They would be shunned. So it made sense. Oh, if we want to live well and at peace and have our families taken care of, we're going to have to give in. The areas that we are tempted to be faithless are probably areas that we are easily, are easily excused because we believe that it is necessary for us to have them so that we can live at peace in this life or our families can live at peace in this life. Think about it. If I don't give in to my addiction, I, I just I won't be able to survive. If I don't give in to this anxiety or fear, I won't be ready for what comes next. I won't be prepared. I mean, I've got to be ready. Or maybe it's the insecurities, right? That our life will be ruined. If I don't have sex, how am I going to know how to survive? I mean, that's what the world wants us to believe. You can't exist without sex. If I don't fudge the rules of my business, I just won't be able to compete with everybody else. And in giving in to these temptations, we replace our faith in God with fear. And in doing so, we identify ourselves with the world. So what about you? What differentiates you from the rest of the world? What differentiates you from your coworkers? 
Are you living at the temple of the world during the week while also proclaiming Christ? Right? The water cooler jokes. Right? The way they talk about their spouse, whatever it may be. Are we then, as a church, willing to make tough calls and hold people accountable to their profession of Christ? I mean, I get it. It's easy. It's nice to be liked. It makes, and for some of us, it's easy, right? It's just our natural, like, we want to be liked, so we're not going to make hard decisions and hold people accountable. It's tempting to excuse away sin on persona- uh, as personality or to make excuses for the way that we are or our, our neighbor is because, well, they've just had a, a rough go of it. But sin that lives among the people of God, when not dealt with in the church, brings a Jesus who is ready for war. That is a present reality, a reality that today that we must acknowledge. The charge against the church in Pergamum is that they were tolerating people in the church who were unfaithful and allowing others to make excuses for their infidelity to Christ. And Jesus will not tolerate his church's unfaithfulness. The promise from Jesus is that he will wage war on them with his sword. It is his sword that will cleanse the church. And that sword is the word of God, which is, which, you know, having the threat of, have, of the chief shepherd come and cleanse the church through war doesn't sound like a great idea to me. I kind of want to avoid that, like Satan's throne. Like, let, let's just stay away from there. War itself, and even like a little bit ago we, in the Old Testament, war itself was judgment. That's how God expressed his judgment on his people. So in Numbers, men were marry, the, the men of God were marrying women that were not of God, of the covenant people, and God would judge them through war. War is judgment. It also, is also cleansing. It's cleansing. It purges evil. But there's always collateral damage. And so it would be wise of us to pay attention to Scripture and to hear the warning. The church, each local congregation is tasked with monitoring itself to keep the people of God as the people of God. Jesus is telling the church in Pergamum, and he's telling us, if we don't judge ourselves, he will judge us. One of the primary ways that a church judges itself, we've talked about this before, is through the process uh, and the act of church discipline. Because we've gone over it enough, I won't belabor the point. But if you're curious, church discipline in the text, the basis for it is found in Matthew chapter 18. So I would encourage you, if you have questions, come see me, come talk to me, read that text. Hopefully it will answer some questions for you. But church discipline is a very simple act. It's the act of going to a brother or sister and gently, lovingly pointing out that their life does not model the faith that they proclaim. Now, I'm not talking about being nitpicky. I'm not talking about uh, just confronting people because they annoy us. That's not what what's being, uh, church discipline is. No, this church discipline is for serious offenses that leave the name of Christ tarnished. Now, we have 
uh, also more information in the foyer, and feel free, there's little booklets on church discipline, so feel free to grab one of those. They're right out here on the other side of that wall. But it is for people who are operating outside of the boundaries of the marriage covenant with Christ. So, in, in Pergamum, while there is the threat, the real threat of judgment, notice that there is still hope. That there is still hope. Jesus is very clearly saying what's going to happen, but he also is saying there's still grace. It isn't too late. You can repent. As a body of people, they can still turn to the path that God has for them, and in doing so, avoid war. So we, we see this picture of a Jesus who's just and bringing judgment, but he's also gracious. I'm giving you time. I'm warning you. I'm letting you know that this will happen. Repentance as a church, then, looks like turning from sin to the pursuit of righteousness as individuals, but also as a body, esteeming that, holding it up, modeling it. The people of God are called to reflect the character of God, and bad apples will ruin that reflection and cause it to be dulled. So we need to resolve on a personal and a corporate level, as a group, as a congregation, as a church, to be in the passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ, Self-preservation will call. Hey, look, if you want to survive, you ought to do this or act this or sell out this command of Christ. But it ought not deter our faithfulness. As we will see in the, in the last verse of this micro letter, that faithfulness to the end brings a reward. So let's look again at verse 17. Con- where conquering is commended. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will make, give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The Spirit is speaking, calling the church there in Pergamum to respond. To respond to the Spirit's calling to persevere in faithfulness, which is conquering persevering through persecution to the end, to finish the race of life that Christ has for you. This task, this perseverance, this marathon, it isn't for the faint of heart. There will be many who give up along the way, many who grow tired and weary, many who do not endure and fall to the wayside. Yet those who conquer, Jesus says, he will give them some of the hidden manna, a white stone with a new, a secret name. So here, once again, we have imagery. We, it's really difficult and probably impossible for us to determine what is meant here without going and looking outside of this text. It's the imagery that Revelation draws in from the whole of Scripture. First, we see the hidden manna. Manna, probably you are familiar with, but if you're not, was the food that God provided for the people of Israel as they crossed through the wilderness. Here, Jesus is saying that this hidden manna is reserved for those who persevere. If you endure, there will be a food that awaits you, that will sustain you for eternity. This hidden manna, just a key observation of the text, this hidden manna is 
contrasted and compared with the manna or the food earlier that we saw that was offered to sacrifice in the titles. If you abstain from the food of the world, you will have eternal food that will care for you. To not compromise and marry the world results in being fed heavenly food placed by Jesus himself. Second, we see that the one who conquers will, be, will receive a white stone. This white stone has a new secret name, right? Like a decoder ring from way back when. It has a new secret name on it. Now, the image of a white stone is not entirely clear. We don't see a white stone really referenced at all in, in, in the rest of Scripture. This commentators then look outside of Scripture to the first century. What cultural significance could this carry? Two of the most common uses of a white stone in the first century were, uh, one, it was a sign of an acquittal. A person on trial would be given a white stone as an innocent verdict and a black stone if they had been guilty. Okay, so we have uh, this, a white stone given on, on account of your innocence. A white stone, twofold, was also given as an invitation to a party. So you would receive a um, white stone if you had been invited to a, probably a higher-end, really nice, swanky party at the Fives downtown. Each stone would have, been, would have the name of the guest inscribed on it. So right there, like here's your invitation to this, um, this party, right? With your name on it, your unique name. And the white, the color white, also reinforces the connection with manna, which is described in the Old Testament as a shiny white substance. Now, as for the name, as for the name that's on this stone, we have a very clear connection. Look on the screen with me at Isaiah chapter 62. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. And the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry. And the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. It was long expected that the people of Israel, the people of God, would be given new names. This was what they, the people of Israel, were looking forward to. We're going to be re-identified as the people of God. <clears throat> when all the world would then see them as his children. And here in Revelation, we see the fulfillment of that. We see that it is the people, the people of God are those who endure to the end. So the summary of this letter to the church in Pergamum is that those who endure faithfully to the end will be given a special invite with a new name to an eternal feast where the food is provided by Jesus himself. Gives me chills. One cannot help but recognize that this is the marriage feast of the Lamb, one that we're going to hear more about later in the book of Revelation. But Jesus, Jesus suffered through law, the loss of intimacy with God so that his people could spend eternity celebrating their marriage to him. 
This eternal feast is a celebration not of our endurance, not of our faithfulness, but of his. He won the victory over sin that we could not and we endure, not because of some great fortitude he's given to us, not some strength that's outside of us, but because he is in us and he has endured more than we could ever imagine. We will never hunger. We will never be lonely. We will never suffer in eternity. All the suffering of this world will be gone. All the persecution, all the call to sit with the world will be gone. Jesus conquered sin and death so that the church can be victorious. But in the here and now, while we wait, we are exhausted. We are worn out. We deal daily with the call to be like the world, to fit in. We become discouraged. Persecution and suffering, it's all around us. As a church, one of the clearest ways that we find the strength to endure and is really truly a picture of the feast that is to come is communion. It's communion. Here at Mission, we take communion very seriously. One of the reasons that we do that is because it is only for those who have a name that has been given to them by Jesus Christ. Communion is specifically meant for those who are walking in faithfulness to the marriage covenant with Christ. It is in communion that we are reminded and proclaim our union with him. In communion, we are given grace by God to find hope to press forward and and expresses our intimacy with Jesus. We also get to see others as they proclaim their faithfulness. That no matter what they're going through that week, and we might know some of it, they are professing that they do not sit with the world, they sit with us in Christ. It is a continual reminder as we do it weekly, that there will be an eternal meal that will be ours. And so as we take the white wafer and the red juice, we remember and proclaim that our hope isn't in what we face in this world, but lies in the future. That one day we will be restored. We will be made new. And this little dress rehearsal that we participate in weekly will be an eternal reality. Friend, the letter to the church in Pergamum should remind us that that faithful churches will call us as individuals to faithfulness. It will be hard. We will suffer. We won't fit in with the world. But in doing so, we we will be prepared for an eternity with Jesus Christ.